How We Got Here, Part 4, Fissuring the Workplace. In 1977, Chris Tilly got a job after college working at a hospital. I worked in uh, central sterile processing, uh, sort of putting together surgical kits and sterilizing them. There was something very peculiar about Chris's hospital by today's standards. Everyone who worked at the hospital was actually an employee of the hospital. The cafeteria was run by the hospital, by the dietary department, the same people that brought the meals to the, the patients. The, the janitors were all in-house. Uh, the maintenance people were in-house. Not to mention that you didn't have uh, the kind of Uh, temp agencies for nurses and various kinds of professionals. Today, this would most likely not be the case. Lots of workers like janitors and cafeteria staff would be part-time, subcontractors, or temps, not full-time employees. This shift was already starting to happen when Chris left his hospital job in 1982. And it was happening everywhere else in the economy as well. At manufacturers, accounting firms, software companies, hotels, restaurants. Chris says this is known as the fissuring of the workplace. Now you've got a bunch of people doing work for the company, but in different statuses, whether it's actually working for a temp agency, whether it's working for a subcontractor, whether it's actually being an independent contractor or a gig worker. Chris says fissuring can also be more subtle and harder to spot. Like the franchising that, you know, McDonald's and the big uh, fast food chains use. You might be thinking, wow, this guy who used to sterilize surgical kits in the 1980s, he knows a lot about labor. Well, Chris is now a labor economist and professor of public policy at UCLA. Chris is going to lead us through why and how executives fissured their workplaces. The why is simple. It makes companies money and it breaks up solidarity between workers. So first, the money. Contractors are way cheaper than employees because a company doesn't have to pay Social Security, overtime, or workers' compensation. And by rotating temporary workers in and out, they don't have to deal with employees pushing for raises after years on the job. And a really big saving of all of this comes from denying benefits. This goes back to America tying its safety net so tightly to employment. If you're not a full-time employee, then you may be denied health insurance, retirement plans, and other benefits. Now, when it comes to worker solidarity, fissuring has a big impact. If everyone is a full-time employee at a company, then they're all in the same boat. In a fissured workplace, suddenly everyone has a different deal. There are temp workers who are there only for a short time. Then there are the part-timers who don't get any of the employee benefits. Then you have outsourced workers in different offices or even in other countries. All these different classes of workers have different perks, different grievances, different employers even. All this makes it way less likely that they'll be able to organize into a union. And if the company makes the workers independent contractors, well then, because of Taft-Hartley, they're actually barred by law from joining a union. Chris says starting in the late 70s, big business started developing more and more ways to increase profits by fissuring their workplace. Now, the 1970s were a tough time for the economy. The U.S. was facing more competition from other countries like Germany and Japan. Both unemployment and inflation were high. These pressures of globalization and the situation with the domestic economy were a main way executives justified cutting costs. They sold the concept of competitiveness and the idea that uh, globally, U.S. companies have to be competitive. That means that the companies have to get leaner or meaner. Chris says this was true in some industries, like car manufacturing, where Japanese companies like Toyota were fissuring their workplaces. 
But Chris says the argument that international competition forced U.S. companies to do this, it gets overstated. Many of the industries that led the way in fissuring the workplace, they weren't even facing much overseas competition. Actually, they were industries that benefited from the increased tourism of globalization. The leading edge was retail and restaurants and hotels. That's where you saw the change happening first, and they sort of pointed the way for other companies. Chris says there were three main phases of this fissuring that have been increasing over the last 50 years. Each one started in a different industry and then was adopted across the entire economy. First was that part-time employment grew. Cut employee hours, cut their benefits. Chris says the retail industry led the way in moving more workers to part-time. Then temporary employment grew. Only give workers short-term contracts. Chris says insurance and other white-collar industries pioneered temping. And then subcontracting grew. Subcontract out entire departments or projects. You can even send them to other countries with weaker labor laws where you can pay them even less. This was big at tech companies like Kodak, Hewlett-Packard, Microsoft, and now Google. Fissuring the workplace can take all kinds of other less obvious forms. Chris mentioned fast food companies. Every McDonald's fast food worker doesn't actually work for the McDonald's corporation. They work for whomever owns the McDonald's location, the franchisee. So the entire McDonald's workforce, it's broken up between all these different owners. All of this fissuring makes it easier for business owners to profit by taking pay and benefits from workers and shifting the risk of uncertainty onto them. If there's a downturn in the economy or a crisis, well then they don't have to deal with as many full-time employee contracts. They can just let the temps and subcontractors go. Now, as for how companies fissured the workplace, well, like the removal of benefits and suppression of unions, there wasn't a big national debate and high-profile laws passed at the federal level. Instead, it was a long subterranean process. Chris says managers and executives did a lot of trial and error to find ways to get around labor law. There was an experimentation process and a learning process that didn't always necessarily require a political shift or a shift in laws, just saying, huh, we could do this. We could get away with this. There's nothing stopping us from doing this. The story of white-collar subcontracting is a prime example of how this happens. There are laws against misclassifying workers as contractors, so you don't have to pay things like overtime or workers' compensation. But even with those laws, tech companies started subcontracting a lot of workers in the 80s and 90s. One of the most high-profile and egregious examples at that time was Microsoft. Hello. I'm Bill Gates, chairman of Microsoft. In this video, you're going to see the future, Windows. In the 80s, Microsoft started hiring lots of workers as independent contractors. And even though these workers were doing the same jobs as full-time employees, they weren't given employee benefits like health care, paid vacations, sick leave, or stock options. They also got different orientations, email addresses, and they had to wear different colored badges. This is still super common at big tech companies today like Google. I've interviewed a lot of workers over the years about their special badges. This person, like most of the workers I've talked to, wanted to remain anonymous for fear of retaliation. I actually hide my badge. Um, I keep it in my back pocket. And uh, I, uh, I get real pissy when someone nailed it like, where's your badge? Where's your badge? So back in the late 80s, Microsoft was making tons of money by denying workers employee benefits and protections. It also made money by perma-temping workers, keeping them in temp positions for years. 
1989, the IRS busted the company for misclassifying employees. The workers, they then followed up in 1992 by filing a class action lawsuit. It took them eight years in court, and they finally won. But this win was really just a temporary one because managers and owners at other companies across the economy, they learned from Microsoft's mistakes so they could keep on subcontracting and temping workers. Pradeep Chowan used to work in staffing at Microsoft in the 90s. I interviewed him a few years back about contracting and temping at modern day tech companies like Google and Amazon. After the lawsuit and after Microsoft lost, Every contingent staffing department in any, every large company kind of started setting up rules around how to best utilize contractors. Companies make sure their temp workers and subcontractors are shifted around on a regular basis to different teams, different positions, even different companies. That way, it's harder to argue in court that they are being misclassified. Back when I did this story, I'd never even heard of the term fissuring the workplace. But this all fits right into the pattern of what Chris Tilley talked about, how companies use trial and error to create more temporary, non-full-time work. I did another story at around the same time about a different tactic companies have to get around paying for employee benefits and protections. That tactic is something called a mandatory arbitration clause. Now, mandatory arbitration clauses force workers to resolve any issues like worker misclassification one-on-one behind closed doors, without a judge and without the public knowing about it. This makes it a lot harder for class action lawsuits like the one against Microsoft in 1992 from ever gaining steam. If you're misclassified, the best you could hope for is a settlement, and then the company could just continue misclassifying other workers. More and more companies are making workers sign these mandatory arbitration clauses as a condition of employment. Here's a worker at Google reading the arbitration clause in her contract. She also wanted to remain anonymous for fear of retaliation. In consideration of my assignment with Google and its promise to arbitrate all disputes, I agree that, except as provided below, Google and I waive any right to a judge or jury trial on any dispute. Since that story, Google employees successfully forced the company to make them stop signing mandatory arbitration clauses. But it's still common practice at many companies. Now when I listen back to this story about the Google workers, I can see how well it fits into this long history of companies experimenting to find loopholes around labor protections. As I learned in the story back then, mandatory arbitration, it wasn't even originally intended to be used to resolve disputes between workers and employers. When the Federal Arbitration Act was passed in 1925, it was for corporations. They used it to settle contract disputes with each other. But starting in the 1980s, a series of Supreme Court cases expanded it to consumers and workers. It's really a relatively new practice. Sanjukta Paul is a law professor at Wayne State University. In the early 90s, arbitration clauses applied to just a few percent of workers. Now, they apply to over half of all U.S. workers. This is a condition of working and therefore a condition of making a living. And the more that this becomes the industry practice, the more that that's the case, that you don't really have choice. This is how things just become the way they are. So suddenly to get a job, you've got to sign away your right to court. And what used to be a full-time job with benefits is now part-time, temporary, or gig work. You're out there, all on your own, fissured from your fellow workers. Today, the fissured workplace is all around us, and it's making life difficult for so many workers during the pandemic. 
Over half the workforce at Google are not full-time employees, and the company has already rescinded contracts during the pandemic to thousands of temp workers. The contractors at places like Facebook and Apple, well, they don't get the same kind of health insurance, paid time off, or privileges to work from home that the employees get. And gig companies like Uber and Lyft haven't paid a dime into state unemployment funds for their hundreds of thousands of drivers, which the companies have classified as independent contractors. So many essential workers right now are doing the jobs of full-time employees. They're out there delivering packages, driving people around, bagging groceries, picking up the phone when you call tech support. But even though they're doing the jobs of employees, they aren't getting the benefits and protections that are guaranteed to employees by law. Next time. The world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. In the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they, where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. These days, when a company makes a lot in profits, there's a good chance that money will go to shareholders instead of workers. In the next episode, we'll talk about how this world of shareholder capitalism became normal. If you want to read up more on the history of unions and their future, check out Bill Fletcher's book, Solidarity Divided, The Crisis in Organized Labor and a New Path Towards Social Justice. How We Got Here is made by Alan Montecilio, Chris Hoff, and Sam Harnett. In 2013, Sam Harnett was driving Lyft for a project he was working on. At around 11.45 at night, he picked up a passenger downtown. They started talking. The guy started telling him that he was a workaholic, then all this stuff about his childhood. When they got to the guy's house, he asked Sam if he could leave the meter running. He just wanted to keep talking. They drove for over two hours. Yeah, I'll go up to like Twin Peaks or something and drive around. Cool. So, growing up, I never quite felt like normal. You know, I went to like a small private school. I didn't take school very serious, you know, like grades wise and stuff. Uh, I never felt normal. I never felt like I could fit in. So if I couldn't fit in, I guess I just have to be better than everyone because then you'd have to respect me, right? I had a period where I was literally working at least 12 hours a day. And when I, and, you know, people throw out like 12 hours, but this is like running around, hustling, like on your feet, not sitting at a desk, not checking Facebook, like doing so many things for 12 hours a day. You know, you're having your dinner with your ESPN, but your laptop's up and you're cranking out emails and looking at numbers and answering questions for people who reach out to you at, you know, late at night and- What kind of work is it? It's like- uh, Sales management. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like endless amount, right? Yeah, it's literally endless. I mean, yeah. it's like you can have like a quota and just hit your quota, but who's in sales just to hit quota? You know, that's not how the game works. You're not in sales if you're in it just to hit quota. But honestly, it's just money. You know, it's like when I go out, you know, I have a better car than you. You know, I have a better apartment. 
I dress better than you. My watch says I'm worth more than you. My belt says I'm worth more. You know, my shoes, my jeans, my whole outfit. You know, it just says that I'm doing well. You know, I have name brands, but they're not necessarily sticking out, you know? But if you pay attention, you see the eagle on my jeans uh, or the little symbol for uh, Armani, you know? And it's like, I know someone eventually is gonna see that, you know? And I know they're gonna see my $200 boots, you know, and my jackets. And I just have to have that feeling of knowing that I'm doing better, you know? People think there are, you know, people say success, a lot of that's based on luck, you know? Is it or is there just a certain way of doing things that some people figure out how to do it and others don't, you know? It's like there's a set of algorithms with predetermined outcomes. And if you can recognize that, you can pick the right algorithm to have the outcome, you know? That, that's how I feel uh, life is. Life is just an equation. If X, then Y. And if you know what your why is, if you know what your end goal is, then all you have to do is plug in, you know, different things for X. And eventually your if X will equal Y. And you can do that with anything, with any scenario, any equation, any opportunity, whatever you want.